Welcome to the Progressatorium, conversations about innovation in higher music education. I'm your host, Susan Eldridge. In this episode, David Cutler shares how he uses games as a powerful tool for innovation and change. Having designed two incredibly impactful summits on 21st century music school redesign, he shares what he learned and observed from the attendees at these events. David also shares his deep insight and vision into leadership and how last century every music school wanted to be pretty much the same, but this century every music school needs to find a way to be distinctive and unique. Enjoy this conversation with David Cutler. Hi, I'm Susan Eldridge, and today I'm really delighted to be joined by David Cutler. Uh, David's a thought leader on problem solving inside and beyond the arts. He currently holds the position of Director of Entrepreneurship at the University of South Carolina. He's the founder of The Savvy Musician. Many of you may have heard of, the, of his work through that platform, and he's written books that have shaped the way that artists change their communities. David, good to have you here. Oh, it's so great to see you, Susan. <laughs> um, can you just give us a quick snapshot of where you are, where we're talking to you from today, and, and just quickly what's happening in your world right now? I am in Columbia, South Carolina, on the east coast of the United States, and just trying to readjust to this crazy new world in which we're living. So, David, I know you're someone who grabs challenges with both, with both hands. Um, so what is the opportunity that COVID has presented for you? Well, it's the opportunity that it's presented for all of us. Look, nobody wanted this, right? No, but I mean, this is a terrible thing in so many ways. And yet, you know, I am to my core uh, a change agent and an innovator and always questioning the way that society works and the likes. COVID, in a matter of days, pointed to opportunities and scenarios that never even crossed my mind. I never even imagined a world in which we couldn't be with other people outside of our immediate circle. And as hard as that is for all of us, uh, a wise man uh, once said, let no crisis go to waste. And this is undoubtedly a crisis, and there is so much opportunity in this. So in working with music schools, and I, I, we're focused on music schools for this conversation. Uh, I think what happened because the change occurred so quickly, understandably, we just wanted to know what can we even do to just get through the rest of the term, right? just to survive. And it's amazing that many communities that have been somewhat resistant to change and to technology, in two weeks, we change everything mm -hmm. that it is that we do. Yet in that moment, understandably, what most of us tried to do was just kind of what we always did and just not just a little, like almost as good or just a little bit worse than we did it before. But we, we, we couldn't reimagine everything we did because we just had two weeks to do it. But as we move forward, now we're, at least here in the States, where we have a summer break and we're thinking about the future. We don't know if our campuses will be open or closed or some hybrid model. The danger is that we say, well, maybe we'll be open and let's just figure out in case we aren't how we can just make something happen again. But I think that the, the true opportunity is to say, as a result of COVID and all these terrible things that have happened, how can we bring something good out of it? How can we be sure that is the result on the other side of this, we will not only be as good as we were, but we will be a better music school as the result of it. 
that this will help us explore new opportunities that we weren't ready for yet or we couldn't see yet. And so that we will be a much stronger school. And even if it all goes away, the one thing is we will come out knowing we are a stronger program. Thank you, COVID-19. I can't agree more. I think it's also allowing us um, to come back to our first principles as well as, well, what, what are we for? What is the purpose of our school of music? And really be um, getting away from the busy work that's been keeping us all occupied for so long. Um, like you said, the, like the, the shutters just got pulled down and we had two weeks to try and figure out how we were going to deliver what we were currently doing in, a, in an altered way. Um, but, but now, you know, we're heading in a, in a down here in Australia into our winter recess as well. So we're also faced with this opportunity of um, pause. Um, you, you, you in uh, North America might be headed for the kind of the refresh button, hit F5, uh, but where on, well, how do we maintain our academic integrity and quality of the student experience in semester two when we're remotely delivered? So lots of really great conversations yeah, hopefully coming from that place of first principles is what, what are we here for? What kind of artists is our school aiming to um, bring into the world? So in this idea of how do we start to think completely differently about what we might be, that's not something that, um, it's something that might be new thinking for a lot of leaders in schools where they've been uh, focused on retaining the traditional format or the traditional model or retaining a set of values um, that were based in the education experience that they had. Um, and the world is vastly different uh, in 2020 than it was uh, even 10 or 15 years ago. So um, can you tell us in, in terms of this helping, helping people to think differently and to challenge their assumptions. You ran a couple of events um, in recent years about summits on um, rethinking the design of uh, music schools. Can you tell us about those? Sure. Uh, you know, I think in the 20th century, one of the most important questions that most music programs asked was, how can we make our school more or less like every other school that's out there, only a little bit better or a little bit worse? And we love to say, you know, we do all the same things that Juilliard does. And our orchestra is only 22% worse. You know, or our, our theory is 2% better. Yeah. Come to us because we're nice and we smell great or whatever it is. <laughs> uh, and that was very much the model. And furthermore, the model worked, right? There was a great expansion and proliferation of music schools. We thrived in the 20th century. But in the 21st century, the world is changing at an exponential pace. Uh, upper administrations and communities are looking to uh, substantiate your value to the institution, to the community and the likes. And whether we like this or not, this is not my opinion, this is just a reality of our time. Mm -hmm. In most industries, the opportunity of the 20th century, 21st century and maybe a mandate for sustainability will go to programs that can clearly identify what makes us different, right? How will our students be differently educated and experienced? Uh, and who will they know that's different as a result from attending our school than any other program? Now, of course, different is not enough if it's not a relevant different, right? <laughs> it has to be kind of a meaningful different. Uh, 
this becomes an even bigger question if we're basically all online, at least for a certain period of time. Well, then really geography is not even the thing that makes you different. So what is it that distinguishes your brand of education? And programs that can, can figure that out can go far. Yeah, and I agree. It's not just, um, and, and this is a conversation that's not just around higher music education, but this is exactly the conversation for um, our performing arts organisations, for opera companies, for orchestras, uh, you know, when orchestras have just been um, cover bands, really, uh, for a long time, is, is I hope that this is a conversation also that's happening in the orchestra world, is how will we be uh, a music organisation that stands for a thing? that matters to us and that that's, that's relevant, that embeds us within our community. So I hope that globally within um, music, this conversation's happening. So can you tell us a bit more about the, the, the two summits that you ran? Um, what were they? What were they for? And who went? So in terms of uh, who, was, who was there, it was really a cross section of music faculty and administrators from across the, the United States and the globe. I believe that we met there uh, and, and really across all of the music disciplines. And essentially they were, they, they, are, they were designed as games with a distinct beginning, middle and an end. So this is not a conference where people are just talking at you. This is about working on a team to solve a problem and then pitching your solution at the very end. Uh, the problem of the first summit was this, that we, it took place at this fictional university that we called Heaven University. And Heaven University is a great, great place. I mean, it's heaven. But we haven't changed our model in a long time. And we recognize that the world has changed. And so we need to change with that. And so the challenge for teams was to design new degrees tailor-made for the 21st century. And so in this process, they would begin by identifying some values that were really important to them. And then they would uh, align those values with the degree programs that they, uh, that they designed. And then they would share that with everyone in the community. And it was a really, it was learning by doing. It was experiential education. Mm. And, so, and so joyful in the problem solving solution as well. Like there was so much laughter going on about, um, like the challenges that you set us were so preposterous, there was nothing you could do but laugh about it and say, well, I don't know, like I'm, I'm just, uh, we've been thrown in an ocean and we've just got to figure out how we're going to swim. And I also, um, you, in terms of the, the change management process that you said to us uh, at the very beginning, no sentence in your solution is allowed to start with the phrase, well, at my school, um, and I, I used, I just, I love that. That's, you know, it's not an innovation if somebody's already doing it, it you know. Well, we're very, you know, surrounded and we're, I mean, great people. And so we're surrounded by what we do. And so mm. we tend to look there as an example of, well, I'm, I'm part of this solution already. And so it's, it's hard to kind of look outside and imagine maybe there's a whole wide world mm. out there. And I think also if you, if you are someone who truly is innovating as, as all of all committed to innovation as all of the people who attended those events were, you are doing, you are already doing things that are quite different to most other people. And, you know, maybe you're in a bit of a, um, an echo chamber of, of um, reinforcing that what you're doing is enough instead of being put in this um, 
uh, situation of being challenged to say, well, it's not enough. You know, it's, 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 it it's not, not enough to just, uh, yeah. Um, so can you tell us what did you, what did you learn from designing and facilitating these, um, two, these two events about rethinking the experience? What, what did you learn? I learned a lot about designing and facilitating, but I, I, I think I like to share what I, what I learned about our industry, uh, which was really, really fascinating. I learned a ton about the design uh, process and, and how innovation works. But I learned a lot about the, the, our colleagues in the environment we're working in uh, that, that were not always in, intuitive. But the first one was, and it, it was really confirmed. The first thing I learned was that as faculty members in music higher education, this is a spectacular group. You know, I can't, I'm, I don't know any other group of individuals. I work with people across all kinds of sectors, but who have the kind of devotion, the commitment to students, to art, to communities. I mean, this is an incredible group of people. And it just made me so proud to be there. In higher education and in music, in higher education, we may be in the fight of our lives right now, but I can think of no army I would rather surround myself with than these faculty members and these administrators. The second thing that I learned was about this notion that you're referring to about change. There's this idea I hear a lot that music faculty are resistant to change. And I just never saw that or certainly didn't see a lot of that. I'm sure there are some faculty members that are resistant to change, but in most cases, at least through the summit or when I go out and visit other programs, most people understand that we don't live in that same world. Most people really believe that we do need to make change. But what was really interesting was what I saw in a lot, in especially the first summit, which helped us inform the design of the second one, was that a lot of people said, yes, we have to change, we have to do things different. And they had such great ideas of what other people should do to be that change, right? So let's, let's create a new course, let's hire a new person who can do this so that I can teach my viola lessons or my theory class or my orchestra the way that I always have, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a big supporter of change when someone else does. Yep. And then there was a second category of person and they're not afraid of doing the change. In fact, I already changed, I am the change, right? I, I changed my textbook. I, I, I brought my class online. I'm an ensemble conductor and we play contemporary music. I'm the enlightened, right? And these are all maybe very good things. I'm glad you changed your book and went online if that's what it is. But this is not the kind of change that we're talking about. These are just surface detail tweaks, which may be necessary, but not deep systemic reimagination of what 21st century learners and communities will need. And the third thing that I learned from the summits is around this idea of innovation. You know, innovation is an easy word to say. It's not even that hard to spell. We use it all the time. But few people who say that word have any idea what it means or have ever seen it in action. When we talk about especially classically trained musicians, not only, let's see how many negatives I'm gonna use in this. Not only haven't we been trained in innovation, but we've been trained in the art of not innovation, right? 
The idea is that this creative genius, this other person, wrote this music and they, had, they came up with all the right notes and all the right rhythms and the dynamics and the articulations and stylistic preferences. And my job, right, if I am a good musician, my job is to realize their vision as is appropriate to the piece. And maybe there's room for me to add a crescendo that's not there or to play it a little bit faster or to make a mistake in a measure where I didn't the time before. But essentially my job is to realize someone else's innovation. Well, if that informs your whole worldview, you know, it transfers to other areas of life. How can you reimagine a curriculum that was devised by these other creative geniuses and handed down to your tradition, mm -hmm. generation after generation after mm -hmm. generation. Musicians are really smart, right? And learning to innovate is much simpler than learning to play the clarinet, but it's not gonna happen automatically. And so I really learned the importance in working with any organization of training giving people chops opportunity to develop their innovation skills, not just their musical skills, not just their teaching skills, but their collaboration skills and their creative problem solving skills. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's, it's, as you said, it's built into the training model from if you're a classical musician and you've been learning the viola since the age of four, the master apprentice model is that the master tells you what is right and wrong and you don't question that, and that continues until you die. Yeah. Um, and we live in, and so we live in a ones and a zeros world of it's, it's perfect compliance, replication, or it's incorrect. Um, and so, you know, in the work that, that we do in, in the space of um, helping, re, help, helping young musicians um, unlock their thinking is um, there's gotta be, there's, we've got to be able to question that and and because we see it, it it links into them being very risk averse humans like if you ask them to do something they've not had very explicit instructions about actually if you've asked them to do something that isn't following an instruction to the letter they really struggle to do that i see you you will see this in your students as well particularly the the classical musicians the instrumentalists who've come through the large ensemble models is they're used to being told very explicitly what to do and they're never asked to think for themselves and there are great benefits to that musician classically trained musicians pay attention to details in a way that i mean who else does that to micro scrutinize yeah. every yeah. last aspect so i know so many kinds of organizations love to hire people mm -hmm. with musical background detail because oriented. the details are important yeah. right if you're an innovator and you have all these great ideas, but it's, it's about the nuts and the bolts. So if you can't address those issues, uh, you're gonna have another set of problems. So that's something that's been embedded into the way that our model of teaching works that has, I think, been very successful for many people. The problem is every lesson comes at the expense of a lot of other things. And we may mm -hmm. have lost, uh, the, or we may not have taken full advantage of creative problem solving and the potential mm -hmm. that music has to really cultivate that skill as opposed to damp it down. Yeah, I completely agree more. I couldn't agree more. Um, 
one of the uh, the sessions that really stayed with me from the second summit you ran was uh, a traditional old school dean dean of a school of music, and I think it was called Taming Taming the Dragon or Taming the Dinosaur, and it was uh, this very experienced, recently retired, very highly regarded leader talking about why he and people like him are fearful of change. And um, he was talking about this, exactly what you said before about this idea of we've crafted this experience over many, many years and it's perfect and we don't want to have to, and, and changing it feels like we're not able to let, we're in this interesting space of being being unable to um, celebrate what that has given us and say it is now not serving us any any longer because we don't know where to go. The future is very frightening for them. The, the 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 reality of the world that the students are graduating in is so far removed from their experience as a music student. You know, if you were a music student in 1930 versus 1970, the world was probably much the same. If you're a music student in 1970 to the music student of the year 2021, it's unrecognisable. And so there's this fear around if we replace it with something else, is it going to be um, will it, you, you, a fear about making the wrong decision? So, in, so this whole idea of it's got to be perfect or it's failure is embedded in their thinking about change, change because because there's so much unknown instead of focusing maybe less on a curricula on, on changing the curriculum than about embedding these skills that you've just been talking about, about um, higher order thinking about um, attention to detail and, and that the actual the skills that we're getting out of music education, not necessarily the application of it in your knowledge of the history of the Baroque period or um, French coloratura singing or whatever your, your thing's going to be. So I, I think the way you shepherded the conversations and continue to shepherd those conversations with leaders about change and helping them understand what change can look like um, is really valuable. So can you tell us a little bit more about, about change with, in terms of changing the culture of what we're doing rather than focusing on, you know, curriculum reform on the, how we're going to do it on the, why we're going to do it. Well, change is, uh, I mean, change is hard and, 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 and we all fear change. I mean, I fear some of the changes that are happening right now in the world. I, it breaks my heart. You know, so many of our colleagues who their primary income is from performing and now all of a sudden there are no performance venues. I mean, mm. it, I, I empathize with that and I, I, I relate to it. I remember talking to uh, someone who's quite, progressive within this world. And she said, you know, I agree with all the things you say, David, like, I, I think you're exactly preaching the right message. She said, what I fear with my background, my very traditional kind of classical background, is I fear that I'm just not relevant in this new environment. And of course, for me, as an outsider, she has so much she brings to the table uh, this, is, this was an artist who's actually had a community fall in love with her. I won't say who it is, but she's someone who actually neighbors in this community bought her a piano. <laughs> they actually bought her a piano because she was in her community like a rock star and such a beloved figure. That's an important skill set, right? To be able to get a whole community to support you. 
she didn't even recognize that because it's hard to be objective about ourselves. And so that's why it's really important to be around people who aren't quite like you. Uh, but there are lots of things that we can do within, I think your question is about how do you systematize that or how do you create a culture mm -hmm. that celebrates those kinds of things? Well, it's hard, uh, but it, I, I always, you know, I'm an optimist and I always think there, there is a solution. There's a solution given the hand we've been dealt. And since that's the only hand we have, we better play it well. Here's what it won't work, in my opinion. You know, sometimes program will get new dean or some kind of leader. They have big ideas. Uh, and they come in here and they really are thoughtful and they might have thoughts that you and I might agree with on every count. And then they come in and they oppose here. The old way is not working. Here's the new way, uh, my way or the highway. And even if their solutions are good, there is going to be revolution. There's going to be pushback or subservience and just a morale that is plummeting, right? So what my belief is uh, and what I recommend for leaders is as a leader, don't be the idea person, right? Actually, if you, if you want to have ideas, be in the trenches. That's the best place to supply the ideas. What a leader can do is set the narrative. They can determine, here are the big questions we're going to be uh, asking. And they can design a process that is such a powerful process, asking the right questions in the right order, that while the outcome is not predetermined, almost any solution it, you almost can't mm -hmm. lose mm -hmm. because it's a great process. Uh, so that's, I think, one thing that's really important for leaders. And then you just look at the reality of our situation. Is this a good thing, a bad thing? I have no idea. But for example, tenure and promotion, right? This is something that actually may have been designed to help, pre uh, to help protect people who have big innovative ideas, right? If you want to try something crazy, your job is protected so you can do that. But in reality, it's often, uh, it's often an act of the opposite perspective. Mm -hmm. Let's play it safe. Let me just get my peer-reviewed publications. And then maybe after I get all these promotions, then maybe I'll try something a little bit different. And then, of course, it's been too long and you don't know how to do that anymore. <laughs> so... Uh, there are ways, if something is important to you, to embed it in tenure and promotion guidelines or mm -hmm. in the annual evaluation. If a program values whatever it is, actually state it there. It's the same thing for teachers. If you value creativity, make it be part of your class. Don't just say the word innovation. Show me the innovation. And so Joe Biden, who... Uh, is running for president here, but I've talked about this quote, whether you like Joe Biden or you don't like Joe Biden, this is a great quote. He said, don't tell me what you value, show me your budget mm -hmm. and I will tell you what you value. Mm -hmm. And so if a program values wellness or community engagement or the success of your students, do that thing. Uh, there are so many, I, I think one of the biggest uh, one of the biggest missed opportunities within our environment, almost every music school I go to, uh, not only do we, part of the way that our little tribe works is that we have faculty meetings. And not only that, we have faculty meetings every month. Is that what you guys do? 
Yeah. Which is really interesting because that's not what business schools do. That's not what a lot of other disciplines do. But within our world, we have faculty meetings once a month at almost every school that I've been to. And of course, faculty meetings, like any other meeting on the planet, or most other meetings are these dreaded but you know necessary evils that we just i mean nobody's like i can't wait to go to the meeting but most meetings almost all meetings are characterized by one-way communication right the lecture i'm the expert telling the people who are there or at worst or at best question and answer and there is value to those things there is a time and i'm not suggesting that no faculty meeting should do that but this is the time where your people are coming together. You have your talent convened. This is the time you should be tackling the big challenges of the day and putting people together on smaller teams to figure out how are we going to address the issues of our time or to use the opportunity to learn from one another or to train them on innovation or on collaboration or on feedback or on what, whatever, whatever the specific skills are. So I see, I see, you know, in all kinds of aspects, without spending a lot of extra money, without what, one of the most uh, underutilized resources in, well, not just music schools, in every university campus that I've ever been to is space, is walls, right? Most walls look you know, like this one. We're just converting our wall this into a, this is not how it normally looks, but we're converting <laughs> it into a studio and we're not there yet. But walls are opportunity for mm -hmm. expression, right? Not for just putting pictures of the old, you know, leaders of your community or, or but, but, but to really celebrate creativity and work through mm -hmm. projects. Look, every kindergarten teacher knows that, right? But no music school does, right? or I, very few music schools or even music faculty have really considered, I've got a wall, how can I really cultivate whatever it is, this value just on that wall? And we already have it, that's the great thing. So my, my suggestion is to, to look within what you already have and maybe there are ways to rejigger things. Uh, I've never said that word before, rejigger. <laughs> rejigger. Um, but, uh, yeah, I agree completely. And, and on that, the, the notion of like, what do we value and how do we communicate what we value? I think, you know, uh, even more applied to us than Joe Biden's quote is, um, don't tell me what you value, show me what's in your rubrics. Yeah. Because yeah. Uh, the students are going to value what we measure, not what we teach or what we say. So how are we putting in our, in the measurements of how we're assessing our students, the things that we want them to be able to do, like this, you know, um, working collaboratively, giving peer feedback, all of these things, are these actually this kind of key skills for them to be able to uh, see, seize and navigate opportunity? How are, this, how are the competencies of doing those things embedded into the rubrics of all the things? Uh, of all of the assessment models that we're having. And then also how on the, um, uh, on your, your annual review for the staff members, are we asking them to demonstrate how they have? So we, it's a, you know, in a school that's maybe more traditionally focused that this, this, the language around innovation and entrepreneurship might be challenging for them. There are ways that we can uh, um, 
nin like ninja stealth your way to some of this um, thinking the way that people are um, uh, changing the way that staff are thinking about their experience that they're providing for their students by asking them to have some of these key skills embedded within the rubrics of the of the subjects that they're teaching. So again, doesn't need to be massive curriculum overhaul. Um, there's lots of zero cost um, ways that, that we can easily, uh, that don't require additional skills, don't require our, staff, our faculty to be upskilling in areas in which they're not subject matter experts, but which is significantly changing the student experience through our schools of music. Right. Yeah, that's my, yeah, I'm with you on yeah, that. I'm don't, at, don't, I'm <laughs> and the same thing also about the signaling, like what is it, don't, you know, um, if you say you're a school about innovation, but the brochure or your website is covered in uh, images of people singing very traditional opera or um, very traditional orchestral models. Well, then, like the 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 story the the story doesn't make sense. So is this is is what you is what you think you are? Um, is that what's actually being presented in the story that you're communicating to to people? And you know, in a way, I mean, innovation, which is such a confusing word, although I do use it a lot, but. Uh, you know, I, I'm not, I don't even really care about innovation or entrepreneurship. Like, I don't care if my students become entrepreneurs. I don't care if they're innovative. I, I really don't. What I, here's what I care about, relevance. And I think mm -hmm. relevance is a term that people can get behind, right? We talk about being a lifelong learner, and part of being a lifelong learner, which is a less threatening term, is learning something you didn't already know. When the value system is... When, when research is, constitutes, well, I go to a conference and pre present on something that I'm the expert on, that might be valuable, but that's not research. And that's mm -hmm. not, that's just me talking about my thing. Uh, whereas if you want to research something or to, to, to grow, try to go to something that you don't know anything about and look for how you can bring those lessons back to, to your own Mm, absolutely, absolutely. Look at what's working elsewhere and see how we're going to map that to the challenges that we're facing. Um, Dave, elsewhere, just I just want to say elsewhere outside of our little silo. Uh, and, you know, I, I, a provost said this to me once and it really took me back. I, I, I mentioned I, I like metaphors and I was saying, well, you know, I get that. And, I, you know, I'd see a big picture, but I said, well, in music pro program, we do this kind of thing. She said to me, she said, you have to understand with all due respect, in the scope of everything that we do, mm -hmm. the music school is like this. <laughs> I was like, wow. Uh, uh, and, and she wasn't discounting it. She was actually a big supporter of this particular music program, but she was seeing a much bigger picture. Innovation is usually taking an idea from one place and applying it somewhere else. It's not about reinventing the wheel, but how can you ever get a new idea if you don't go anywhere else? And the challenge in, you know, I call it, I think we have this thing called instrument thing, is what I call it so much of the time, where we're not only limiting our conversations to a silo, music, or sometimes even to a sub-silo, like brass, but it's a sub-sub-silo, right? We're surrounding ourselves with other flute players or with other theory teachers. And there is a time for that. And it would be a shame to never do that and learn from people who are like you from a homogenous perspective, but there's also great value to bringing in someone who sees the world from a very different perspective. And one reason is because you can never 
change or see a new way of doing something until you identify an assumption. And some assumptions are so deeply embedded, we don't understand that they're assumptions. We just think they're the way that they are. So for example, if you wanna make music as an ensemble, you gotta be in the same room. And we never even questioned that. And all of a sudden COVID told us, well, you're gonna have to think about this a little bit differently now. Mm. And for many of us, we just couldn't imagine it except for the lowest hanging you know, fruit. And, and there are all kinds of other things, uh, assumptions that we make that are very difficult to challenge that someone from, who's not from our mm. mm-hmm. little tribe would come in in a second say, why is why everyone studying with someone? Yeah, why does everyone study with someone who plays the same exact instrument yeah. as them? Yeah. Like, yeah. But that's something we would never even think, well, why a saxophonist has to study with a saxophonist? Why would mm-hmm. a saxophonist study with a violinist or a dancer? Uh, like mm-hmm. that would never even, we could not even ask that question in most cases because we just believe if you're a saxophonist, you got to study with a saxophonist. Mm-hmm. That's how you learn music. My, we all uh, know that. It's happened we, that way for thousands of years. Uh, my wife is a conductor and she uses the analogy a lot for people to say uh, as an instrument, as as an instrumentalist in the ensemble, you have a jigsaw piece, but I have the box and it's my job. I have the box with the picture on the lid and it's my part of my job is to help you see the lid of the box. And it's the same analogy in, in, in the school of music, we have our jigsaw piece, but we need to be working with people who can see the lid of the box and see the things that we are not seeing about the connections and the synergies and the opportunity that we're, that we, that in this kind of thinking are a little bit stuck in. David, I, I like, sorry. I just know. wanted to say, I love that metaphor. And I would love to just add, yes, the conductor has the box of the jigsaw puzzle, but the jigsaw puzzle was made in 1980 <laughs> and it no longer is <laughs> relevant to today. <laughs> so we have to look at what the, I see the picture of what it used to look like. And now we have to figure out how to not make this jigsaw look like this with the same pieces Mm -hmm. in many cases. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting challenge. Yeah, I agree. Um, David, just one more question. I know you have a range of, uh, as well as your your work um, teaching in the school, that you do uh, lots of interesting projects. Um, Can you tell us about the projects that you're working on at the moment? Sure. I have two big projects I'm working on this summer. Uh, One is called Supernova. When my son was four years old, he began playing violin through a Suzuki program. And he used to ask me if I would play with him. Uh, And I have to admit, I'm a pianist, I've played all over the world, but I do not have what it takes to play the accompaniment parts from Suzuki Violin School Volume One. It's just like not in my DNA. So I used to like improvise and play poly, rhythms and different key, volley tonality and different genres and, and the likes. And, you know, I always tried to stress with him that being a musician is about excellence, but not excellence alone. It's also about finding your own voice. Uh, so when, when it was time for his uh, first show, uh, he was playing one of the Suzuki greatest hits of all times, Go Tell Aunt Rhody. And he asked me if I could play with him uh, and if we could go out on stage and wear shades, purple shades, right? So I was like, okay, sure, let's do it. And we thought, so what I did was I played this like uh, funk version of Go Tell Aunt Rhody, but he played the notes and the rhythms that were there. And we thought the audience might like it, but we were just blown away by their response. They just like exploded in innovation. Uh, 
and so anyway, I decided I had to do something with this collection. So what I've done is I went through and I took all 17 pieces from uh, Suzuki Violin School Volume 1, kept the melodies the same, and then composed wild, virtuosic, crazy accompaniment parts for rhythm section, each inspired by a different genre of music from around the world. And so I'm releasing this big supernova. It's called Supernova, which is the opposite of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, the first. <laughs> um, so we're, we're releasing this. I'm running a crowdfunding campaign in August and September, and then releasing it in November. So that's one of the big projects. And the other project, I'm working on a new book, which is called Problem Solving Champion, Winning the Game of Innovation. Uh, it's not about any particular type of problem, but it's about a, a, a system for gamifying the problem-solving process. So how can you turn mm -hmm. challenges into games and then play to win and turbocharge your team while doing that? And this book is so different than my other books because my other books were just word books. But this one, actually, I'm working with an illustrator and a designer. So it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a word book, but also a picture book. So a beautiful aesthetic book because images you know visual communication is really powerful in a way that words alone aren't just like musical communication is and so that's been a really fun project uh, to embark on as well and what is your what's the intended release date for that new book it will probably be about a year from now so maybe fall 2000 sorry spring 2021 i think i hope that's going to be your, your COVID baby. Sorry? It'll be your COVID baby, hatching yes, that yes. over the COVID. Yes, um, absolutely. David, it's been an absolute delight hearing your brain-melting ideas, as always. So thank you for the work that you do, for the ideas that you bring into the world, for the shepherding and care that you give to our artists. Um, and I wish you all the best over the coming weeks, and we can't wait to um, hopefully speak again soon. Well, thank you for leading this conversation, Susan. Thanks for all that you do. Thanks, David. Thanks so much for joining us for the Progressatorium. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. You can find links to anything we've mentioned in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed the conversation and it's been valuable, then help us by please spreading the word and sharing this conversation.